Well, the problem we are looking at today is, for some people, a a crushing problem in their lives. But for everybody, all of us here in the room, it's at least somewhat of a problem. The issue we're looking at today is anxiety. Uh, For some, anxiety is such a crushing burden that they could even call it a disorder. Uh, We estimate that about now about a fifth of the American population is suffering from enough symptoms that they would be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder if a doctor were to see it. And about a third of us at some point in our lifetime would be diagnosed with a disordered level of anxiety. Uh, And that just means that your worry, your fear, your anxiety is intense for long enough to interfere with your daily life and the things that you're trying to do. But even for the two-thirds of us that evidently would, would not ever be diagnosed like that, worry is a problem. We have things to be anxious about, we have things to be worried about, and things to be afraid of. So nobody's exempt from the things we're going to talk about today. Uh, today, though, we will look at two very particular types of anxiety and the ways that the Lord instructs Christians to deal with them in ways that are particularly Christian. Now, you will find in the world, all around, all kinds of ways to deal with anxiety, and some of them will help, but none of them will get to the root issue the way that the Bible's teachings do. Now, only the truths of Christianity, the gospel, and the teachings of the Bible can get to the roots of the issue. So today, we're going to look at some truths that get to the root and give us some healing. If you're just joining us, we are now about halfway through a sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent which are psalms that were gathered together for Israel to sing while they were on the journey from their hometowns up to the mountain of Jerusalem. They took that journey three times a year for festivals of worship. It was a long trip. It was a dangerous trip, and it would exhaust them. They were going from a place where God was far to a place where God was near, but they weren't making this long trip alone. No, they were going together in caravans and groups, and they were singing these songs the whole way. And in that way, they're a lot like those of us who are Christians here today, going from a place where God is far to a place where God is near, walking a long road to get there, a dangerous road, an exhausting road, but not doing it alone, doing it together and singing the whole way. Those psalms are arranged symmetrically, and so each one has a mirror to it that it corresponds to. Today, we're looking at the fourth and the fourth from the last. And you'll see as we read them that what they share in common, the link between them, is that they both deal with anxiety and distress. The first one deals with an anxiety that is particular to the people of God, and the second one deals with the type of anxiety that everybody can experience. Let's look this morning at Psalm 123 and Psalm 131. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. In Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The words of the Lord. Through those two psalms, the Spirit is showing his people how to handle two types of anxiety that are still common today. The first psalm, the distress and the anxiety that comes upon the people of God when those in power hate us. And the second psalm, the type of anxiety that can come on anybody when our lofty ambitions begin to make us anxious. We'll look at those one at a time this morning in detail. I'll give you a brief overview first. The first psalm, we don't know who wrote it, but we know that they are speaking on behalf of the people of God and that the powerful people around them are heaping up contempt, scorn, and shame upon them. The people of God have become weary under this. It is like they are carrying a heavier and heavier load. As he says, we have had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. It is a lament of what it feels like when the rich and powerful hate the people of God. It makes us almost sick to our stomachs. He, however, lifts up his eyes to the Lord and says, Lord, we are looking to you the way that a servant looks to its master, saying, will you move your hand and protect us? And so we learn there much about how to handle the distress and anxiety that comes upon us when powerful people hate the people of God. In the second one, in 131, we know that King David wrote this, but we don't know if he was king when he wrote it. It could have been shepherd boy David who wrote it, or it could have been David on the run from Saul who wrote it, or it could have been lofty King David who wrote it. But what we do know is that he has freed his heart of the anxiety that comes from lofty and grandiose ambitions. He said, oh Lord, I am no longer committing myself to things too wonderful to me. I am not obsessed with things that are above my grade. No, I'm not trying to know everything anymore. I'm not trying to get it all perfect anymore. These things are beyond me. Instead, he says, I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. He is free from the anxiety that comes with lofty ambitions. And he compares this to a baby who has gone from being fussy to being weaned. He says, I've quieted my soul like a weaned child, like a content child with its mother. And then he calls Israel to do the same thing. Oh, Israel, would all of us hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So in that way, the two Psalms deal with different types of anxiety. Now, to give an overview of what the Bible has to say about anxiety, it has many, many comforting words to the anxious and also many anxiety-inducing words. And there's a big difference between the two. The comforting words for the anxious are all given to the people of God. And the anxiety-inducing words are all given to the enemies of God. You might think of Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about what you will eat and what you will wear and what you will do and where you will go. You have a father in heaven and look how he provides for the lilies of the field and for the birds of the air. How much more will he provide for you, his children? Comforting and reassuring words to his disciples, the people of God. But then of the Lord's enemies, it says things like, there they are in great terror. 
or James speaking to people who are living now at ease but are oppressing the poor. And he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So two very different messages for the people of God and the enemies of God. And so before we really outline a Christian way of handling these two types of anxieties, I must call you to become part of the people of God so that you can hear the comforting words and not have the words of terror reserved for you. If you are here this morning and you're not one of God's people, the message that I first want you to hear is that if you feel anxious, you have much to be anxious about. In fact, the Bible spends much energy telling those who are against the Lord You should be more anxious than you are. By our sin against God, we have made ourselves his enemies, and he will come in power. And our hearts know that those who sin against God deserve to be judged. That's why we judge others, because we know that those who do wrong deserve to be judged. And so if we have not made that right before God, we have good reason to be anxious. That's even a godly anxiety that we're feeling. Now, the good news that resolves all of that is that the Lord has made a way for us to come back to God and be his again and be one of those people that receive the comforting words about our anxiety. What he has done is he has sent his son to to live without sin and to live in perfect worship of God. And then that son willingly went and offered himself as a sacrifice, as payment for our sin. And during the public scorn from rulers that criminals receive and enduring an excruciating, torturous death at the hands of the government as criminals receive, and even enduring the wrath of God poured out upon him as sinners deserve. He didn't deserve any of that because he wasn't a sinner. He never sinned. But he says to anyone who would come to him today, I have done it so that my experience might count for the judgment that you deserve. He says, I have paid the debt of all those who come to me. And so he has a very open hand this morning calling any who are anxious under the weight of their sin and under the truth of coming judgment, saying, come to me if you're weary and I'll I'll give you rest. My death will count for your judgment. My resurrection from the dead will guarantee resurrection from the dead for you. So you no longer need to fear sin or judgment or death, because he has endured these things for us and is victorious over them for us. If you want to receive that, you simply need to look to Jesus and cry out to him for it. Just ask him for it, trusting him, and you'll receive it from him. He will do much more besides, but he will make you one of his people, and one of those people to whom he says, you don't need to be anxious. You have now a father in heaven, and if he provides the birds of the field, he will provide for his people as well. So there's how we become one of the people of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who are then, let's look at two different types of anxiety this morning and how the Lord tells us to handle them. First, we'll look at Psalm 123. I said earlier, this is a psalm about the distress that the people of God feel when powerful people hate us. And the first point I want to make this morning is that when powerful people hate us, It is distressing. We get an image for this in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 123. He says, We have had more than enough of contempt, and then again, more than enough 
of the scorn of those who are at ease and the contempt of the proud. And those words, more than enough, we're getting a picture of more than we can bear, right? A backpack that is heavier than I can lift up, and then more is put upon it, more than enough. Or have you ever just eaten way too much food and felt so miserable? He says, we have had more than enough, right? So, so he is feeling as if not only has he had too much food and then had more food, but some tormentor is force-feeding him even more. And he just says, this is, this is miserable. Our soul together has had more than enough. There's a modern illustration of this. How many of you have ever heard of, of the gallon challenge? Anybody? Anybody ever attempted the gallon challenge? We got some wise people in this room. Good for y'all. Good for y'all. You've heard of it, but you've not done it. If you've never heard of it, uh, the, the idea is that it is impossible to drink an entire gallon of milk in one hour. Your stomach just can't handle that much liquid and that much lactose or lactate or whatever it is it erupts violently when you try. And so college dorm rooms and fraternities and summer camps are endlessly saying, who wants to try it, everybody? And always some person comes forward and tries it, and it always goes terribly. My friend Jeremy tells the story about a summer camp that he was at where the counselors encouraged and encouraged the students, somebody's got to try it, let's try it, let's do it, who can do it? And of course you can't do it. And two students stepped forward to try The first one, a strong 300-pound linebacker on the football team, ready to give it a go. And the second one, just your normal skinny kid, they both sit on on two separate rocks out there in a field. And the first one, the linebacker, opens his gallon of milk and just like tortoise in the hair style, he's the hair, just boom, and drinks the whole thing and then He's like, I got it. And the counselor says, well, you have to keep it down for the whole hour. And he says, oh. Meanwhile, the the skinny kid is over there, you know, tortoise in the hair. He's the hare. He's the tortoise. And he just takes a sip and times himself and takes a sip. And about half of the hour has gone by and he's drank half of the gallon of milk and he's pacing himself and he's trying and about halfway through a half gallon of milk is all that his stomach can bear and in violent fashion he loses in front of everyone all over all over other people's shoes all over the rock all over himself and of course all the kids are cheering and having a great time so the linebacker at this point has still kept everything down Uh, But he sees that and gets a little uncomfortable and then burps and then loses it all. So once again, in violent fashion, all over everyone on that side of the field loses everything. Now, if you can connect with what it must feel like to have that much milk in your stomach, this is something of what the psalmist is getting at when he says, Our soul has had more than enough, more than we can bear of the scorn and contempt of rich and powerful people. And if you've ever experienced that, you know that that's what it feels like. 
in the real world, even today, we experience this, right? There, there are people who are rich and powerful in the Hollywood, California, making TV shows and movies that frame Christians in the worst light. How long has it been since you have seen a character on a TV show or a movie who was an, an open Christian who you related to and connect with and you felt like represented you and was a good guy in the story? I thought and thought this week, I think I have only ever seen one movie in which our faith was well represented, made by mainstream Hollywood. But how many times have you seen a, quote, Christian character who is really just a hypocrite and terribly frames our beliefs? You see that all the time. Angela in the office is a perfect example, right? So when those who are rich and powerful, those that have the microphone, the influencers on social media, the people who write the laws... When the people who have the power have a scorn for our faith and even for us, it feels like having too much milk in your stomach. It feels like too much. And we say, Lord, like, this, this is awful. We hate this. We can't bear it. And it is distressing. For others of us, we experience this on an individual level. Some of you are the one guy in your lab that holds to the teachings of the Bible. And you know it sets your boss off. Others of you are in college classes where the professor is very much against our faith and is targeting people like us. And others of you are going to school in high school and you know that the cool kids in school believe a different thing than you believe and they have a disposition against people like you. Uh, when that happens, it's overbearing. And what this psalmist wants us to know is that you're not crazy if you feel that. It is distressing. Now, we might want to, in our pride, say, oh, no, it's, it's not so bad. Like, you know, we would convince ourselves that we should not feel distressed when it happens. But here is the psalmist giving us license, saying, Lord, our soul has had more than enough. So it counters that sense in us that says that's not supposed to bother us, right? It's, social pressure and social persecution is not a big deal, and here he says, no, it's not violence against us, it's contempt, it's scorn from the proud that's making us feel that way. This is indeed a biblical reality through and through God's people feel things like this. Psalm 44 says, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nation, a laughingstock among the people. Psalm 89 says, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations. God's people get scorned, we get mocked, and it hurts our hearts. And this is because we follow the one who was, Isaiah says, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces and was despised. Our Lord was mocked and despised by the world. And he says, if they hated me, they, they will hate you as well. When we're mocked like that, we're servants of our master. And so the apostles experience the same thing. He says, when we're slandered, we, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. To become a Christian is to become uncool in the eyes of the rich and the powerful. And it has always been that way since before Israel was a nation 
in the land of Egypt, suffering as slaves. So the first thing this psalmist is doing is just giving us license to feel that and say that it's real. That distress is real. The second thing he shows us, though, is that that distress will continue until the Lord topples the powerful. We see that in that word in verse 2, the last line, till he has mercy upon us. Our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. So we will continue feeling this distress. We will continue bringing that distress up to the Lord until the Lord topples either those particular people or until the Lord comes and topples the mighty and powerful altogether. So that's a distress that we have long had. It is a distress that we will continue to experience. And in fact, that same psalm, Psalm 42 that I, 44 that I quoted earlier, it's the one quoted in Romans 8, by the way. He says, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He turns next to the Lord and says, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? This is how the people of God feel until he comes in power. It will feel to our hearts like he's forgotten about us. Feel like he's ignoring our oppression because he is patient in his judgment and he wants many more to come in. And so until then, we will continue to feel it. But as Deuteronomy says, for the time when their foot shall slip, the day in their calamity is at hand and it comes in a moment. The day when their foot slips, it will come like that. Until it does, we will continue to feel the distress that comes with the scorn and the hatred of the proud. That means that the day won't come when I preach a sermon that tells you how to stop that distress or how to stop that anxiety or stop that persecution. Because the rich and the powerful will continue to hate the people of God. It will go up and it will go down. It will vary, but it will always be there. And as they do, we will feel distress until he comes. So the question then is, how do we handle it? If this is a reality of the Christian life, what are we supposed to do about it? The world would say resentment. The world would say, look at what those terrible people are doing. You should be afraid and you should resent them. Is that not the message of both sides of the aisle on cable news even still? Look what those terrible people are doing. You should resent them and be afraid of them. But the Lord gives us a better way even in this very psalm. The way he gives us is to instead pray attentively, humbly, and patiently until he comes. And that's what we get with this image in verse 2. Behold, he says, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. The way that a servant-master relationship worked back then, if you were the servant, your job was to do the work that the master told you to do. And if you were the master, your job was to provide for and protect all of your servants. And you were judged socially about how well you provided for and protected your servants. And so if you're a servant and another servant begins to harass or oppress you, 
Or if somebody else out there begins to harass or oppress you, you have someone to protect you. You have a master. And so they would go to their master and say, Master, this is what this person is doing to me. Will you protect me? Will you care for me? But then they just have to watch and wait because there's a power imbalance there, isn't there? The master gets to do whatever they want. And so they wait and watch. Sure, the master is supposed to protect you, but what will they do? And so their eyes are on the hand of that master, like, like a convict's eyes are on that gavel as it falls on the judge's bench because your fate all comes down to what will they do? So you're watching attentively. Will you help me? I will stand here and ask until you help me. That kind of eagerness, uh, that kind of attentiveness, that kind of humility and reverence, that kind of patience, that is the sort of prayer that we are supposed to offer up in this difficult world. We go to our Lord and we say, here is what is happening to us. Entire political parties are rousing up a hatred for Bible-believing Christians. Lord, will you come and help us? Our brothers and sisters overseas are suffering torture and death for their faith. Lord, will you help us? And we go back to him again and again, and we stand before him with our eyes on his hand until he comes and has mercy upon us. We pray to him attentively. We pray to him humbly. We pray to him patiently until he comes. We actually have an example of this in the Bible too, and it's, and it's Jesus himself. Uh, he is about to endure the, the sentence from the government to death for his faithfulness to God. And not only that, but the scorn and the mocking of those who are proud and powerful in the day. As he hung there on the cross, he was not just in excruciating pain, but shame was heaped upon him. And the rulers stood by and watched and mocked him, saying he saved others and he can't even save himself. It was the the influencers of the day, the powerful people of the day that were saying that, even as the crowds seemed to be on his side. So he knows he's about to go and face this in the next 24 hours. And so the night before, he's in the garden, and he is full of distress. He says, my soul is cast down, even to death. It pressed him so greatly that his sweat was like drops of blood on the ground. He felt this very distress before his hour of trial. And so three times he went to the Lord and he prayed, Father, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. Yet, not as I will, but but as you will. And then he went and he suffered his trial and the cup was not taken from him. But on the third day, he was delivered. The book of Hebrews says he offered up loud cries in that moment. And he was heard because of his reverence. Even Jesus himself went to God as Father and prayed with reverence in his hour of distress. And it says the father heard him. Now the cup wasn't taken from him. He prayed patiently, right? Yet not as I will, but as you will. I will still go through this trial patiently. But he was delivered. He was heard. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and he is seated even now at the right hand of God. 
There's our perfect example of what it looks like to offer a prayer like this, patiently, reverently, humbly, attentively to God when we are distressed at what the powerful people of the world are doing to us and how they feel about us. Do you see how different that is from the resentment in political culture today? This is especially true in conservative politics today. I'm not talking about policy, I'm talking about rhetoric. The rhetoric is more and more stirring up a resentment for those powerful people. There are even entire churches that are, that are building themselves upon the energy of that resentment and that revolutionary type feel. But can you see how different that is from a humble servant who goes before God and says, God, will you help me? In fact, I would go as far as to say that a church that is built on resentment for its enemies must be a prayerless church. If they were full of prayer, if they were doing what this psalmist is doing, if they were doing what Jesus is doing, they would be able to say like Jesus as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. So how do, how do we then see what's going on in our world and not fall to resentment ourselves like those around us? We do that with humble, attentive, patient prayer before our God. If you feel that distress and anxiety of the rich and the powerful coming after us, what you do with it is you take it to the Lord our God. Pray attentively, pray humbly, pray patiently. When I say humbly, I just mean reverent to our Lord, right? As the eyes of a servant look to our master. And when I say attentively, I just mean waiting and eager for him to come back and rescue us. The way that this servant is looking to the master until he has mercy upon us. And when I say patiently, I mean knowing that he will come and being willing to wait until he comes. There's a balance there, right? An eagerness for him to come and a willingness to wait because you know he will come. That kind of prayer settles then that distress we feel when the rich and powerful hate us. It will continue to go on, but the Lord's ear will be open continually to hear our prayers. So that's how we handle the anxiety that comes upon the people of God when the rich and powerful hate us. Let's move to the other psalm. Psalm 131 teaches us about a type of anxiety that not just the people of God feel. Anybody can feel this. And it is the anxiety that comes from grandiose and lofty ambitions. One of the principles we can pull from this psalm is that lofty ambitions lead to anxiety. To put it maybe more simply, but in more words, if you desire to know it all or to get it perfect, that is going to crush you with anxiety. There's some biblical principles under this here. The, the, the secret things, the scripture says, belong to the Lord. There are questions that we do not know the answer to. You can find strange things that have happened in the world. Right? There, there are even entire YouTube channels devoted now to what's the deal with UFOs. Right? There's some weird stuff happening. And the scripture says the secret things belong to the Lord. The, the X-Files idea doesn't work. The truth is out there. We just got to go find it. 
it doesn't work. No, the secret things belong to the Lord, and we will learn as much about what is going on as the Lord chooses to reveal to us. If you put a burden on yourself to know everything about something, you'll crush yourself, because only the Lord knows everything. You can't do it, and so you will be full of anxiety. Similarly, only the Lord, it says, can declare the end of a matter from the beginning. Only He can say, here's how it's going to go, and it goes that way. We can't do that. So the book of James says, look, those of you who say today and tomorrow we will go into this place and we will do this business and we will turn a profit, he says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. His point is, you might be dead tomorrow. Like, never mind making your appointments and doing all the things you planned and it going the way you planned it. You may not even be there. No, only the Lord can declare the end of a matter from the beginning. So we have to write our plans in pencil and know that it won't go that way. And we have to look to God for wisdom and know that we will not learn it all, but then be content with whatever measure of success and whatever wisdom the Lord gives to us. So with that principle under him, he says, Lord, I have not lifted up my heart. I haven't raised my eyes too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. He says, Lord, if, it, if you are keeping it a secret, I'm not trying to find the answer to it. If I'm starting out an endeavor and I don't know how it's going to go, I will admit that I don't know how it's going to go. And I will look to you for wisdom and do my best and receive whatever success or failure that you give to me. He says, I haven't occupied myself with things too lofty for me, with grandiose visions, things too great and too marvelous to me. He says, what I've done instead is I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. Because, again, if you let yourself be occupied with things too marvelous for you, your soul will not be calmed and will not be quieted. No, that pride will lead you to anxiety. And the image he gives for that is a fussy baby that becomes weaned. We talked about this a little recently in another sermon. Have you ever been around a baby that is held by someone else and it sees its mom? And you know what happens, right? The baby gets fussy and anxious. And some of you can hear that sound and you know how it kind of makes your shoulders go up in your back and that there is anxiety in that moment. That baby wants milk that it does not have. And so it's anxious. And if you want to know everything about something, you want milk that you can't have. And so you're going to be anxious and fussy like that baby. If you want to guarantee that whatever you're into is going to succeed, you want milk that you can't have. Only the Lord declares the end from the beginning. And so you're going to be anxious and fussy like that baby. But David says, no, I have calmed and I have quieted my soul instead. My heart's not lifted up any longer. We have some biblical examples of this. One of them is Job. Job, at one point in his life, kind of has everything. And the Lord takes it all from him. And at first, he is, I mean, he's a God-fearing sage, and he's so pious. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then his friends come, and they start talking. And the topic of the conversation is, why did the Lord do this? And the more they talk 
the more they just can't figure it out and it doesn't go well. And by the end of it, Job is in great distress. So him trying to answer this great question of why did the Lord do this, it leads to anxiety, stress for him. And then the Lord shows up and says, I'm not giving you the answer, but I am the Lord. I made everything. The sea monsters are my plaything. I am the Lord. And then Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. I have pondered things too lofty for me. Why did the Lord do that thing? It's a question that we can't answer, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. When we try to answer that question, it leads to distress. It leads to anxiety. We don't know why the Lord does what he does because the secret things belong to him. So there we have before us a picture of what that looks like. We try to answer questions we can't answer, and it leads to stress, distress, and anxiety. There's a recent example of this in ministry as well. There's a church in South Carolina uh, led by a guy named Perry Noble, and the church started to grow. You know, They started out like us, and then they grew, and they grew a little more. And then the, the pastor came to them with a lofty ambition. The ambition was 100,000 and beyond. We want our church to have 100,000 people gathered at it and then beyond. And on the power of that grandiose ambition, they built institutions, they built multiple campuses, they got into several tens of thousands of attenders. And then one day, the pastor had to come before them and abruptly resign his post. And he said to them, In my obsession to do everything possible to reach 100,000 and beyond, it's come at a personal cost in my own life and created a strain in my marriage. In the past year or so, I have let myself slide into the overuse of alcohol. This is a spiritual, moral mistake on my part as I began to depend on alcohol for my refuge instead of Jesus and others. He had fallen to drunkenness. Not because of genetic predisposition, not for other reasons, because of the distress and anxiety of the grandiose ambition he had put upon himself and the church. It led him to so much stress that he turned to alcohol. And the church was, of course, crushed. This is what happens when we fill ourselves with lofty, change-the-world ambitions and say it must be this way or else rather than letting the Lord declare the end of the matter from the beginning. Rather than saying, sure, we have goals, we have desires. Our church has desires for Greenwood and a vision that we hope we accomplish, but we hand the results over to the Lord because he alone declares the end from the beginning. When we do that, we give ourselves permission to calm and quiet our souls. We say, we'll be as faithful as we can be. We will look to the Lord like servants look to their master. But we won't try to declare the end from the beginning. And we won't try to understand everything that's going on. So the principle there under it is that lofty ambitions lead to anxiety. In your life, maybe you can find the same thing. If you have to get it perfect, or if you have to know everything about something, I bet you're an anxious person. Because that's what that lofty ambition leads to. So what do you do? What we have to do is we have to get our hearts content with the wisdom and success that God gives us. Get your heart content with the wisdom 
and the success that God gives you. We see this in David's words in verse 2, but this is remarkable, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. If I were writing it, I would write, the Lord has calmed and quieted my soul. He says, I have, like, I had a part in this. With God's help, he taught himself, he disciplined himself to be content with however much wisdom God gave him and however much success God gave him. Now, we might ask, well, how would someone who does that ever succeed at anything? I think King David did all right, right? So he he leaves his success up to the Lord, and the Lord cares for him. And that image he gets is not the fussy baby, but the, the weaned child. This is a child that can sit in its mother's lap and be content and happy and playful. And there is that stress-free, anxiety-free heart that happens when we let go of lofty ambitions and stop trying to know everything, but simply do our best and leave the results to him. So if pride says, I have to know everything and I have to get it all perfect, humility receives wisdom from God, takes wise risks, and lets him run the world. So someone then who's, say someone's going into business, that's a risk, that's a stressful time. Say you're going to start a a bakery. Pride would say, I must know everything there is to know about baking. And if there is something that, that cannot be known, I will find a way to know it. And I must know every detail about this business and I must have every base covered and we will need to make this money by this much time and this money by this much time and I insist on making this money by this much time, right? A plan that is rigid and we must stick to it and even puts its own ego and pride on the line with the success of the bakery. Humility says, Lord, I want to start a bakery that honors you. Will you you teach me? wisdom. We teach me how to bake and how to own a business and how to care for employees. We teach me from your word and from wise mentors. It receives humbly any wisdom it can get from God. It's not, it's not shunning wisdom and knowledge. It says, God, if you'll give it to me, I will take it and I'll seek it from you. But the mysteries and the things you don't teach me, I'll be content not knowing them. And then it takes wise risks. It says, I'll start this bakery. I don't know if it's going to succeed or if it's going to fail, but I'm going to do my best and I'm going to honor the Lord all the way through it. And then it receives from the Lord whatever success or whatever failure comes from it. This is wise risk-taking in the name of the Lord with dependence upon him. We don't know how it's going to go, but we can take risks before God. There's actually a biblical picture of that as well. The prophet Isaiah talks about farming, and he says, does the one who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he's leveled its surface, does he scatter dill and sow cumin? He puts the wheat in rows, and he puts the barley in its proper place, and the emmer at the border. And here's the point. It says, for he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Just about everybody farmed in those days. People who were good at farming, how did they learn how to farm well? God taught them. How did they know to put the wheat in rows and how far apart the rows need to be? The Lord taught them. The Lord's the source of all wisdom. They might even know it's the Lord teaching them. The Lord taught them. 
So many verses there about how the Lord teaches us how to do our work well. And then hear what Mark says about the same occupation, farming. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Right? So this is a farmer who knows what to do, right? It's time to, it's time to sow the seed. It, it is time to get the sickle out, because harvest is here. God has taught him what to do. But after he scatters the seed, he goes to bed, and it just kind of grows up by itself. And he knows not how. It's a mystery. How, how do businesses turn a profit? I mean, we can do things as best as we can do, but how does it wind up working? We know not how. We know how to do church, right? We know what the Lord has taught us to do, but how would this place ever succeed? We know not how, right? The Lord is the one who gives that. So the Lord teaches us how to do things rightly, and then he controls the results, and we don't really know how it happens. A couple of people have come to Christ here in our church recently. I know not how. The Lord just did it, right? He used faithful preaching and he used your faithfulness to bring your friends to church. We know not how, but the Lord does it. If we can let go of having to have that control of knowing how and instead just do things as the Lord teaches us and then receive whatever he gives us, then we can be free of the anxiety that comes with lofty ambitions. Same thing can happen when you have kids, right? If you have kids, do you ever feel any pressure that your kids got to be perfect, right? They got to just grow up perfectly and their whole lives have to be perfect. And I have to know everything there is to know about babies and about pregnancy and about parenting and about school and about all of the stuff and about soccer and about softball. And I must know it all. I must raise them perfectly and the kids need to grow up and be perfect. If that's your desire for parenting, you're an anxious person, aren't you? Because it does not work that way. You cannot know all the things. There are too many mysteries in pregnancy. There are too many mysteries in birth, too many mysteries of childhood, and too many mysteries in life. You simply do not know how it will go. But if you can do it faithfully and give the results to God, you'll find yourself much more freer of anxiety in your parenting. So how then do we heal ourselves from that pride that comes from lofty ambitions? We receive God's wisdom, we act faithfully, and we leave the results to God. Here's the bottom line for the whole thing. The first kind of anxiety, the second kind of anxiety. You must let God run the world. He will do it just fine. Hand it over to him. Let him run it. Let him return when he will return. Let him give the success and the wisdom that he will give and leave the rest. And you'll find yourself so much freer from worry, from distress, and from anxiety. So there's how the Bible teaches us to deal with those two kinds of anxiety. Let's spend some time in prayer and we'll ask the Lord to help us to live it out.